Welcome to the Maximo Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Jose Solis. Today, Liz, Aaron, and I discuss four shows we've seen all over New York City over the past few weeks. Enjoy the show. Okay, so let's start with introductions. Sure. Hi, I'm Liz of Fuck Yeah Great Plays. I'm Oren Squire, New York Theater Review. And I'm Jose, and I'm pretty much everywhere. So <laughs> we went and saw four shows. Were they all in the city? Yeah. Yes. All in the city. They were. Okay. Sweltering summer city of New York. <laughs> so, see, Penny Maria, if you're listening, you missed out on the one time when you wouldn't <laughs> have had to travel. And, and non-fringe. A summer without fringe. Uh, Second summer without fringe. Yeah. Right? It's very strange. Okay, so let's get started. All right, so first up, we're going to talk about Fruit Trilogy, which is the new uh, Eve Ensler that's going on at uh, Abingdon Theatre Company. It is a three-parter starring Kiersey Clemens and Liz Michael, um, where So it's three pieces, Pomegranate, which is about uh, two women who are sort of being bought and sold into... Some sort of female sex something. It's a little <laughs> vague on the details. Um, and then we have Avocado, which features a young woman uh, who is escaping a sort of uh, sex trafficking by being... Um, oh, my God. What is the word I'm looking for? Transported? Or Trans- yeah. She's like being Hauled in a shipped. giant ship of cargo, of um, avocados? Yes. In, in a big holder and then the last one is coconut which is a woman in her bathroom sort of reflecting on the ownership of her own body so i guess this year we've gotten two new evenslers because we got this and then we had uh, the word of the body body of the world mm-hmm. i always mess that title up <laughs> um and you know i saw that one too and i left i, I saw it because evensler is such a an icon of feminist theater. I mean, Vagina Monologues is like one of those classic shows. And I remember leaving uh, Body of the World and feeling like it kind of missed the mark. Like it was a show that was exactly Eve Ensler, but wouldn't really translate to anybody else. It's a very, for better or for worse, she has a very specific white feminism that really, I think resonated with me when I was, you know, in college and I encountered that show Vagina Monologues for the first time. And I feel like now I'm seeing these newer plays by her and they're sort of missing the mark. Like she hasn't really caught up with the rest of the conversation. And so this this piece to me the the opener is it's Eve Ensler doing Waiting for Godot a little bit. Um, Samuel Beckett's play. Yeah. The urns. And, yeah. And it just didn't work for me. I thought, you know, if this wasn't Eve Ensler, this would not have made it onto a stage. It just feels kind of hacky. It's two women's heads. You just see their heads and this sort of neon lighting, and they're sort of in a grocery store or maybe a toy store. Um, what are we doing? Why are we here? Where are we going? Oh, look at that man. Oh, just zippy, zippy, zippy. And it just didn't work for me. And I thought, oh, my God, if this is all three plays, I'm going to – I don't think I can stand this. 
Um, I did like Kiersey Clemens, who is the solo actor for Avocado, the second piece, even though I felt like the second piece wasn't telling me anything about trafficking that I wasn't already sort of aware of. Um, it was a nice little twist to discover she wasn't on her way to, but on her way from. And then the third piece uh, with Coconut, you know, features this older woman who is taking ownership of her body. And then it gets very meta-theatrical, and it's about just letting her letting herself exist in the space um, as an older woman, as a bigger woman, as a black woman, um, and owning that part of her, which includes um, getting topless, which I don't know about when you guys saw, but in my audience there were like literal gasps when she took her bra off. Hmm. Which People was, were saying, please, no, don't. And the audience like, no. Oh, God. The guys are like, oh, no, please. And I was like, I don't think that's appropriate, but I also kind of agree with you. I didn't understand what the piece was doing, but to her credit, I I will say that is not a body type I am used to seeing naked on stage at all. That is true. um, Which is pretty incredible. And to just, the way that she owns it is amazing and beautiful. And I really enjoyed that part of it, even if I'm not sure I liked the piece. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I guess overall for me, I I don't really understand. I feel like it, it was missing some... Education. It was missing something a little deeper. Um, I I don't know. I'm really glad that you brought up the the gasps because yeah. when I saw it, the gasps came during avocado. When I remember, everyone at a certain line meeting, everyone went, "Oh!" But they were okay with the nudity. Like I, that was not, that wasn't <laughs> the case when I went. But it was you know I agree with a lot of the things that you're saying and. In fact, one of the things that I was very curious about was to see how, I mean, the vagina monologues has become like legendary because like it pretty much allows, you know, women from all backgrounds to appropriate it in a way. But like in the body of the world is very Eve. Like you cannot see anyone else. Doing no, that's it. not a show you could just pick up and drop a, drop in a college and let yeah. other <laughs> actors do it. It is so specifically Eve Ensler's experience with cancer uh, for better, you know. Which is great, but it's one very narrow perspective yeah. on it. So I well was, told. Yeah, it's. It, I, so I was really curious about how you know she was gonna have two actors doing these pieces, and there is a lot of Eve Ensler in these pieces. Like I don't necessarily think that women escaping like human trafficking are going to be talking about existentialism that way, but also. I I don't know like I I, I kind of like met it in the middle I think like I was like oh this is so Eve but then there were moments that I found really beautiful like what you're saying about like the you know the older like women and just being so comfortable with her body and like in front of all those people just being you know what this is me you can like it or, or leave it I've never seen the vagina monologues I've seen excerpts of it I miss that whole generation of theater I did enjoy in the body of the world but I was prepared for the Eve Ensler experience by a lot of friends saying, don't go, don't go see it. It's going to be like 
the longest bar mitzvah speech, just full of <laughs> earnestness. Like, we should all recycle and vote in 2020 and make sure you donate to your blood bank. Like, things where you're sitting there as a New York liberal, like, oh, I know. Preach to the choir some more mm-hmm. about how we should be good people. And so I really enjoyed In the Body of the World, but my expectations were very low. Um, And I knew it was going to be white feminism. And I'm fine with that. I I do believe there's a place for that, obviously, uh, (laughs) in theater. But uh, this play, I brought along a friend. I called her the king of Chicago theater, happens to be in town working on a project. So he came along with me to see this. And we were both kind of in a lot of pain throughout these three different plays. And... I thought maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm a New Yorker. Maybe he's he's enjoying it. And then afterwards, he said like they should pay me to see that. And I was like, okay, so we're in agreement. I don't I don't necessarily agree on that level. But by the time we got to the black woman stomping her feet and singing and getting the white audience to dance, I just wanted to get up and stretch. So I was cool with like getting up and like <laughs> waving my arms around while her you know. Nanas are drooping down to her her knees. I was like, as long as I get to stand and stretch out, uh, because this has been a long evening of self-indulgent, earnest uh, speeches that don't reveal anything new to me about sex trafficking, objectification of women, or uh, the mystical magic of black women on stage in white people's eyes. So where, where should this show be playing then? Because I, I wondered, you know, what, what I... I think I was pretty much the only person of color when I went to see it. And like everyone at my performance was like super white and super old. Mm. And a lot of those people were having after the show and they were talking to each other like, oh, can you believe that? And all of that. So then it's in the right space then. But but it, but it's it's <laughs> like I, I was like, this is New York. And I, I totally agree with you. And like I was like, this show probably should be playing, you know, in like regional spaces. I I actually was, I came out of it thinking, you know, some college kids are going to get really great monologue cuts out of these three shows. Well, maybe not the first one, but the, the second, <laughs> but like, these are pieces that are going to, that are going to work for scene work. They're going to work for college. I just, it, they missed the mark. And my audience was pretty young, but my audience was almost entirely women, um, which was interesting. Um, my audience was older, some young people, but it was maybe a slightly more diverse uh, and yeah, people were just decently bored. diverse. It was all women for sure. People just could not wait to leave. I was thinking about that two for one drink at hangar next door <laughs> and how we left that second drink out, out there to rush over. We're like, how soon uh, is this receipt still good? We're talking about like, can we still go back there and get our second drink? Uh, especially during that avocado section where it was just the same note. I don't know whether it's the acting or directing, uh, I know this actress is very talented. I really liked her. She portray- just- I felt like it was the text that wasn't quite working with her. N- not least of which because the way that she talked took her from everywhere from 12 years old to like 25. And I felt like the... Is she a young person who's been thrust into this world too young? Is she older and embittered? And she kind of went between the two and I wasn't 100% sure what... You didn't think it was, was it gaspy on your night? Because I found it very gaspy and hysterical. Her performance was very much like hiccup, gasp, hiccup, gasp. It was a little like that at the beginning and then it got more grounded. And maybe that's why I felt like the age 
went up like halfway through and I wasn't <laughs> sure what was going. Is she aging? How long has she been in this, uh, this facility, this avocado truck or wherever she, whatever, you know. The container. The yeah. container, the shipping container that she's in. I don't know. I just, I don't know. I'm very really, middle class. When people start screaming at me, I sort of lean back in my chair. I cry more when you get me to scream or get me to cry. I don't cry when you're crying and wailing and screaming at me. I tend to, as a middle class American, sort of shut down emotionally <laughs> when I see that. And like, when is this going to be over? Like, uh, you know, an animal that's being like yelled at. I'm like, is this over yet? So it's just personal opinion. Some people do like the operatic emotions of people throwing shit. I tend to like freeze up like an Edward Albee character. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't like when everyone starts to scream. I can't deal with volume as an indication, indication of emotion. Um, but I felt like this, each of the pieces was going, was hitting their marks. It was like, we have to do this and this has to happen. And this is how we're going to talk about this subject. And I was like, do something new. Like, I want to see something interesting and different. And it just didn't quite. I, I will give props, at, at least in my opinion, the first one I checked out of, and then it started to win me back at the end. The one with the sex toys. Oh, I, I was, was like, not. I was checked out, and then I was like, oh, when is this going to be over? And then once I realized it wasn't going to be over soon, I kind of let my mind go, and I found some pleasure in just going on the journey of slightly esoteric, nonlinear monologues of two voices battering against each other in darkness. But it took me a while. I had to go from like yeah. pain to misery to like what are the the stages of grief uh, that you describe? Where you just like, anger, denial, anger, denial. Then you just acceptance. Give up. Then it becomes like that's the eventual journey, at least for that play. And then I was like accepting it at the end, like oh, and I saw the beauty in the world, and I felt like I was um, the end of Winston, whatever Winston Smith at the end of nineteen eighty four, like crying, like for <laughs> Big Brother, like. Big Brother, so beautiful, but I had to go through the whole torture. Uh, I, know, phase. I, I couldn't deal with the first, but I, I did. I liked Avocado enough, um, yeah. and the last piece, even if I didn't like the plot of it, I, you know, the act. Both actors were just like totally given it their all. Absolutely, yeah, and so both great. that's cool. I think also this is where I should add that the show's eighty minutes, so yes, <laughs> yeah, so it's not a very long show, but it does feel like you're in it for for a while yeah it's three very realized pieces i wonder because i saw that in london she presented them like i think coconut is making it's like world premiere here in the fruit trilogy but i think in london she did each piece individually like pomegranate and uh, avocado so i wonder how was it received in london yeah and i wonder how Mm -hmm. just sitting there for half an hour with each of these pieces might have felt and because like the experience of that whole trilogy is very yeah it's 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 quite something speaking of short plays not related to this at all (laughs) african mean girls play is 40 minutes long i wonder Mm -hmm. and it's brilliant and you kind of want more i wonder what would have happened if she would have written like a completely different play as like a second part whether it would have you talk about like rhythm and pacing but you watch that 45 minute play and you're like, I want more. But then yeah. you're like, wait a minute, maybe that's a bad thing. Maybe I shouldn't get more. Maybe this is just good at 40 minutes because then I get sick of these characters because it's so rich. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime that you put pieces like that, like in the Fruit Trilogy together, you're saying, look at these as a, as a unit together. 
and looking at these as a unit together, I see what they're trying to do, but I don't think it's novel mm. at all. And maybe if I saw them separately, it would draw that out a little bit more. Maybe I would appreciate the first one more if it was separate from the other two. I don't know if that's true. Possibly not. But if it, if it wasn't in stark contrast to the other two, I don't know. I'd rather see her talk about her private parts or her cancer than try to go outside and do like reporting and then turn it into a Samuel Beckett show. If you're going to do reporting, I think do In the Body of the World, where it's like, I'm a rich white woman and I'm in West Africa, like Anthony Bourdain, <laughs> yeah. uh, with just like just without, without the cuisine, more like Anthony Bourdain for people who love to be like miserable on their trips and see terrible things happening and atrocities. But I was like, own it. Uh, or vagina monologues. I'm like, if you're a rich white woman, own it. Be, you know, fabulous rich white woman. Yeah, talk and about. I, and we talked life. about this a little bit after we saw, uh, we saw something we were talking about vagina monologues. And every show are, we talk about vagina. Yes, monologues. we just it's just always got to go back to it. Um, but that I don't even think it resonates as well now as it did 20 years ago because at least when I saw it in my college, and I know that they have since added some pieces and rewritten some pieces, it sort of ends with this, like, the best thing a woman can do is give birth, which is a little, ugh, nowadays. And I remember at my college, there was a big uproar from people being like, what if we're not having children, or trans women who can't have children, or other people who can't have children? Like, why is the having children the end-all, be-all of having a vagina? And that was difficult and there were certainly were no trans voices um in vagina monologues at the time i believe they have since changed that mm. um yeah i think it's just i just want evensler to evolve a little bit i think that's all i'm asking playing uh i guess devil's advocate a lot of sham shepherd plays have not aged well too yeah but because he's a dude we are willing to restage and and deal with the misogyny yeah. and weirdness of a lot of his plays, which might have been good 30, 40 years ago, but now you watch him, you're like, yikes. <laughs> and yeah. so I wonder if, uh, I can't believe I'm saying this. Buried Go ahead. Child. Yeah, Buried Child, Oof. which you saw at Juilliard, and I was like, what's going on? Um, and maybe it's just play, a lot of plays when they're hot and they're about a specific topic or very related to that person's character it's hard when that person's a rock star character for that brief window of time looking at it 30 years later being like, what were people smoking back then? What was the deal? I don't, I don't understand. Uh, and so I have to, in my mind, not let the tyranny of the present oppress the past. I can't let my particular like, this is bougie to be like, well, back then maybe people were feeling it because... You know, I have to do Sam Shepard stuff when I was in school, and, and that was considered important work, even though it was dated slightly. So that's food for thoughter. Food for thoughter? <laughs> food for thought. Or food for thoughter. <laughs> or thoughter. But I do agree, um, maybe some of the stuff doesn't age well. I'm not sure, because I've never seen Vagina Mama. Right. It's only excerpt, but anyway. So speaking about important... I just wasted time. <laughs> <laughs> no, but speaking about important works, I think that's a great segue to go into uh, our next show, which is, which is uh, Elevator Repair Services. Everyone's Fine with Virginia Woolf, mm-hmm. which is a parody. Is it a parody or a satire? It's a parody, right? Yeah. 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 Which is a parody of Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And we, again, have George, Martha, Nick, Honey, just like being assholes to each other and drinking 
But in um, the script by Kate uh, Selsa, what we see is like they bring to the surface all the themes, especially like the gay themes that were not necessarily obvious in Albie's play, which is, you know, one of those other things that we see every couple of years on Broadway, right? I happen to love Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I don't necessarily think that it's aged particularly well. And one of the things that I really loved about this production was that they went and uh, cast uh, African-American women as Honey, which is like... I'm pretty sure the Albia State doesn't... No, no, it's you can't... Nick has to be a white guy because of all the references to like Aryan nation right. and all that stuff. But I believe Honey is okay to be cast as a person of color. But there was all that big uproar when they cast um, uh, people of color as Nick and Honey recently in a major production. I don't remember which one. Yeah, because the Albia State was like the Albia State lost their minds. So I wonder what the Albia State thinks about 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 this, but uh, and you know it was very funny. Like I, I happen to think that Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is really, really, really funny. Maybe not necessarily for like the right reasons sometimes. So I appreciated you know this company just like poking fun at a classic that all the critics like pretty much jack off to all the time. Well, didn't critics back then? Criticize Edward Albee because they said it sounded like two gay men were arguing with each other, <laughs> or at least the New York Times did. I, I'm I'm trying to recall my theater history class. But I feel like vaguely I've heard that, but I, I couldn't pinpoint a source for you. And it was quickly overwhelmed by a course. Now it's considered a classic, but right. I I remember at least New York Daily News or New York Times. The critic was like, "These are just two gay men." who were talking to each other, which then was a whole backlash. You're saying, like, what are you saying? Gay people can't write straight characters or straight characters don't act like bitches because they do. It isn't just gay men after three martinis, you know. Mm-hmm. Married couples can be some of the cruelest people in the world to each other. And I think Edward Albee, although he wasn't in a married relationship with a woman, tapped into that unhappiness of his adopted family. And the unhappiness of his adopted mother and, you know, growing up around rich, spoiled people and how sensitive and brittle and fragile and full of rage they are. And you kind of wonder, like, you don't really have a reason to be uh, on the surface when it comes to material goods, but there is something lacking in your life uh, and a promise that seems like it was not fulfilled. So that's my uh, not defensive who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but like trying to understand the context of what people were thinking when they might have seen it like 50 years ago. Right. Even when the movie came out, like people still refer to uh, Elizabeth Taylor's Oscar winning performance as one of the greatest drag performances of all time. I love yeah. the movie though. Yeah, maybe because it is a drag performance. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it is a pretty great role. Um, yeah. I, I liked the beginning of this show a lot. I, as someone who did study a lot of theater history, you know, the, the way it came at, not just the, not that, uh, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, but Tennessee Williams and uh, Arthur Miller in there. Mm. Uh, the spoiler with the, the vampire that shows up is Carmilla, which is based on a classic canon, canonized uh, Dracula, pre-Dracula story, rather, vampire story uh, about this woman who sort of uses her power to seduce other female vampires. Mm. Um, Did not know that. Yeah. Actually, it's very cool. And someone made it into a YouTube series recently, like a modernized it. That's actually fun. Look it up. Carmilla. Um, And so the biggest thing that I got out of it is the way that these canon writers, white male writers, 
um, couldn't really write women with nuance. You get, you know, harpies and she bitches and the sort of draggy performances of Stella and Blanche. (laughs) And you get a lot of both of those in there. And just men trying and failing to capture a female experience. Um, And the show comes at you so fast. And I feel like the beginning was just bam, 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 you know. And I liked that. I really liked the performance. Um, It's Annie McNamara who plays Martha kind of doing sort of a, what were we saying? Anna, Anna Gasteyer sort of performance. <laughs> right. Um, like very, very <laughs> sketchy sitcom-y sort of opening. Now, I, I've not seen other elevator repair service shows. Um, I understood them all to be 18 hours long. And this is a, a breezy hour and 15 minutes. And... I almost felt like they packed three hours of show into an hour and 15. And so a lot of issues were raised and maybe not spun out or resolved and not even resolved, but that they didn't, they didn't spin out a lot of these ideas fully. You just got a lot of theory thrown at you Mm. um, and a little bit of explanation, but no solution. I don't know. The only elevator repair service show I saw had April Mathis in it a few years ago, and it was, yes. Oh, she plays Honey, Fondly right? Colette, yes. Yeah. Fondly Colette at New York Theater Workshop, I believe, and I loved it. It was way too long, but in its extreme length, it allows you to get lost in the work and then you have to surrender to it because you're not going to be able to follow beat by beat, moment by moment, because it is like a hodgepodge and a collage of different styles so that you lose a story, then you gain the story, then you lose the story again. It is similar to watching a David Lynch movie mm. where you're not expected to follow beat by beat like a Law and Order episode. You know, they're going to be points on Mulholland Drive where you're like, what? Why is the monster behind the dumpster? What was that about? And you just have to be like, okay, later, later. I'm, I'll, we'll get back to that later. And you trust in the storytelling, but you need a large enough canvas to do that. And it felt like this play should have been way shorter, like 60 minutes or way longer so that you could have gotten lost in the world that they were creating. It felt like it was not only cut, but that they had sections where the actors were either improvising actual lines the night I saw it, or they were changing up their intentions. Like they hadn't figured out what their role was and hammered it down. Especially, I had to say, Annie McNamara, uh, she was trying out shtick, but she wasn't doing it, in my opinion, with confidence. And she sort of gained confidence as she, as she went along. The guy had a shtick down, which was like hysterical screaming and that high-pitched voice, which is which always works, I guess. You Vin, know, like, Vin Knight. Who Vin Knight George. had like his hysterical screaming voice that he would reach, but it didn't feel like they were listening to each other. It felt like they were trying out shtick during certain parts. Like maybe I'll try a funny voice and they do like a baby voice. Then they do a voice and like, (laughs) high. and I was like, really? This is like how uh, elementary school kids would act in a play. They'd be like, I'm going to try to be cute here and I'll try my baby voice out. And now I'm going to stomp around. And it's like, are you listening to the lines? Are you just trying out different tones to see how it feels to the audience. So it might have gotten settled down as it went along because we saw it early in previews. Yeah. 
Well, and it's funny because remember we talked about that after the show a little bit. And the more I thought about it, the more I felt like it added to the sort of weird sitcom-y vibe of the first, I don't know, two-thirds of the show. Because we get a big tonal shift in that last third. And I felt like that last third could have been longer. I would have liked to see... Yes. I would have liked to have seen more... Um, touches of that earlier in the piece, I would have liked to see it integrated a little bit more and probably a little bit longer where you get the sort of zoom out of uh, Carmilla, who is our PhD candidate, and this is her thesis project. Um, And she sort of comes in and explains all of her ideas. And I would have liked to have seen maybe a little more interaction between those two, um, barring the George... I don't know what you'd call it, like a Judy Garland moment where he has the big microphone and he's in the caftan and he's just in, which was delightful. Not to steal from other shows as I'm about to steal from other shows, <laughs> but I would have been interested even beginning with the PhD student a la Octoroon. So mm. you're framing mm-hmm. the story of like, here's what I'm doing. This is an experiment or therapy or both or neither. I don't have a therapist. Ha ha. <laughs> and then you go into the show. So we know like, all right, we're in this person's head. We're in this PhD student's head, just like an Octoroon. We're in this black playwright's head. Because if Octoroon just began with the slaves, you'd be like, what? What's going on? This yeah. is confusing and yeah. racist and weird. But it's framed by saying, oh, this is what we're going to do. And this is a form of therapy as a black person. For a female PhD student, PhD student this could be a form of therapy examining the hysterical women in Tennessee Williams and Edward Albee. And there was an excellent point that a PhD student would make when he said, like, she said, in Edward Albee and Tennessee Williams stories, the failing of men are these huge tragedies about society. And then the failing of women are like these hysterical little incidences of it's Freudian like trauma of your home as yeah. opposed to the world the cake burnt in the oven yeah. or like the roast or these you know I burned dinner angels in America these kind of these minor things or very white woman right yeah. white rich white woman a, like, a woman's failure is a woman's failure a man's yeah. failure is the world's failure yes you phrased it a lot better than me I'm gonna man explain over you though no I'm joking <laughs> thanks, thanks Art. Love what it. you meant to say <laughs> like I, I wonder how much in the show because I was also very surprised that it was so short. I was grateful, but I was surprised. Uh, but I wonder how much of that had to be, you know, had to do, I mean, with how much the company thought that people knew the play beforehand. Because I went to a matinee, and there was like a nine-year-old kid in front of me. <laughs> and I was like, What? So I wonder if that there was a ninety-year-old kid. No, nine. Oh, nine. Yeah. I was like, well, I mean, the title is say everyone's fine. Everyone, so it's, yeah. You know, it's the positive version of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. <laughs> everyone's fine. So they obviously did not read the irony. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when or I saw Hand sh- to God. It was on Ash Wednesday, and people were walking out because they thought it was Hand to God. It was going to be like. Uh, so people sometimes need to read the synopsis. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Sorry, what were you going to say? I don't know. Okay. Not I. Let's move on to our next show then. <laughs> Oren. I saw Fairview with Liz and half of New York Theater felt like yeah. a few days ago. Just running every, into people. Everyone who's anybody was at the performance <laughs> exactly. that we went to. Nicole was there. Mike Walkup from P73. Mm-hmm. Daniel Isaacs, who is in The Gentleman Caller and is on Billions. And like five or six other people who I recognize. Uh, 
Lynette Freeman. Anyway, I'll get to the play. I'm just going to name people. <laughs> well, who I'm going to pick there. up all these names that you just dropped. <laughs> uh, Excuse me. Name dropper. So we all were at the spot. Soho rep to see Fairview <laughs> by Jackie Sibyllis Drury. Um, am I saying her name right? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Directed by Sarah Benson, who is also the artistic director at Soho Rep. And when you enter the space, there is this very peach mauve sort of toned living room. I said it was like every MCC play. Yes. Yes. Or or a lot of half of MTC's plays where you're (laughs) watching a nice living room. The furniture is uh, very middle class, nice to the point of being like cheesy. And we know we're in a Soho rep space. We go, what's the trick? Well, this is not really (laughs) what the play is about. So is this something where we could do a spoiler alert or spoiler? Because it's pretty hard to talk about this play. Yeah. Do you want to pause? We should just warn people when the spoilers are coming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the play is set in three different parts. We can talk about the first part and the second part, I think, fairly easily. The first part is like a standard black family drama, and there are plenty of like the dancing and remembering songs from the 70s and the earth, wind, and fire and things that make you feel good and jokes about mama and family intrigue and who's doing what to who and the daughter is a lesbian and <laughs> lots of cooking lots of cooking and don't spoil this and did you remember to get it's things that i can almost do like in my sleep and i think a lot of writers could do in our sleep and that is on purpose uh and i kind of knew that i was like this isn't just this play like this isn't a mediocre family matters there's something else going on here so then when the mother passes out, the play rewinds itself. Spoiler alert begins do 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 now. Yep. <laughs> the play rewinds itself and it begins again. But this time we hear this podcast of like white people talking over the play. And they're talking about race and how much they want to be black or which race they could yeah, be. If you could, if you could choose your race, what race would you right, yeah. choose? Yeah, and, and then the people on stage are doing the action, but they're muted, and we're listening to this very long, drawn-out conversation about race that goes on for like 30, 40 minutes, felt like an hour, uh, and then it continues on into the play, and at the very end, the white characters in the podcast who you hear but don't see sort of join the family at the end in this giant orgy of food and violence and catharsis and expiation of things in black culture and tropes and black dramas and in family dramas. And then it calls to question who are these dramas for on stage? Who's watching them? And why can't we do something new as artists of color? So I thought, what Jackie was saying was was great. It was uh, a great experiment. It triggered a lot of uh, memories in my mind of feeling slightly hemmed in and trapped as an artist of color. Um, did it succeed? Well, that's very subjective. <laughs> um, not entirely, in my opinion. I'm sure it's going to get a rave in the New York Times, but it didn't exceed or excel entirely because the first part was so pat that I know she what she was trying to do. She was trying to make it pat on purpose. But the first part was so pat and, and wan and kind of goes along at a normal clip that I expected it. The second part begins and it's the same thing over again, which I was fine with never seeing again. 
Except now it has these white people talking over, which in fact made it worse. And then it goes on for like 30, 40 minutes. It goes on for a long time. And I was checked out. And then the twist is the white people arrive on stage as black characters and interact with the black characters. And this whole big breakdown about American culture and how we see ourselves happens. And that's when I checked back in. Um, and then she asked everyone to come up on stage at the end and examine the white people on stage and then the black actors. Yeah, they invited all the white people to leave their seats and leave all their stuff and come on stage. Yeah. So I, I admired it and I'm very happy that I saw it. I think it's definitely worth seeing. Is it an enjoyable play? I'll leave that up to other people and Jose and Liz to decide because it's something I don't think... I don't think it's a question I can answer. Like, is it enjoyable? It was enjoyable in places for me. Uh, and in other places, it was very much like something that would drive people away from theater who are newcomers. If they saw this, they'd be like, I'm never going to see another play again. Uh, Especially so, white people. Because they're like, I yeah. don't want to be yelled at. <laughs> I feel threatened. Yeah. yeah so I, part of that, I did spoil the play for myself a little bit. I was trying to find the freaking runtime for the show. And I found a, a comment on what Broadway world's message board or something <laughs> or someone was talking about how they went and saw it and they were like and then we got yelled at and we got yelled at by the actors to leave our seats and we had to leave the theater because the show wasn't for us anymore and so I went in prepped to be yelled at I was like I'm gonna Aww. get screamed at I don't that know sounds what's gonna nice okay. yeah I was like <laughs> okay more positive opinion all right I'm gonna get screamed at and uh, I will say to white listeners we didn't get screamed at. Mm-mm. They sort of keep musing about it. Like, what would it take for me to get people out of their seats? And what would that be like? And how would that feel? And I did not feel accosted. It was like someone had a very visceral reaction to it, apparently. Um, but I did. So yeah, I did end up going on stage with a bunch of white people. I'd say it was probably half the audience when we saw it. Um, there were people who did not leave their seats. Mm-hmm. I thought it was an interesting choice once you're standing up there looking at these people and you're like, what is your deal? I was judging like four white people behind yeah, me. Here. I, I was, was like, hey, you. And we were standing all on the set, which is also after you've spent so much time being watching the show, it feels like an invasion. I felt like I was taking in someone's space, which I think is kind of the point um, that I felt like I didn't belong up there and I shouldn't be taking over this space from these actors. Um, and then the actress, I cannot remember who played the daughter. Maya Boateng. Yes. So she, so she's standing at the front of the stage facing the audience now with her back to, well, most of the white people. And she made some joke and I don't remember what, but she cracked some joke and all of a sudden everyone around me was like, <laughs> and I felt really uncomfortable because I was like, this is not, our show anymore why are we like i feel like i'm not i don't want to be engaged in this anymore this is not for me um which i think is all the point um it's about sort of giving you can talk the talk of giving people space but then Mm -hmm. you have to actually give them the space um to to develop new work and stuff and i guess what i got out of it is someone who's trying who wants to do a, a playwright of color who wants to tell different stories and is still stuck in the same tropes that are we expect of black playwrights and black plays. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's Soho Rep, so the actual context you're seeing the show in 
kind of tips you off and might do a disservice to the show because you're you're waiting for the irony. If this right. was I'm, like a I'm standard, waiting to get screamed at by yeah. actors. So. <laughs> if this was like Roundabout or like MTC, you might be like, oh, black people on stage, how comforting. See, is it February yet? Okay, I'm seeing a black show. <laughs> but like, because it's Soho Rep, you're like, where's the twist here? I know this is, you're sort of gonna hit me with a jab. So we're debating outside whether that gave away the game so soon because you're like I know this isn't just a play about black well, people I didn't know that oh you thought it was going to be like a, a slap knee slapping good time yeah, I even thought like what's wrong with Soho Rep <laughs> <laughs> like they had a stroke collectively yeah, and yeah. but I mean I guess you could also go into a Soho Rep show knowing there's going to be a twist but not knowing necessarily what that's going to be Yeah, what the, is it going to be a 10 out of 12 situation where it's just kind of crazy technically or like a Marie Antoinette like something I don't know. Again, I sort of knew going in that it was. They were going to be. I was going to be screamed at. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Which was not true. Again, I just want to emphasize I wasn't screamed at. White fragility is real, people. I know. I was like, of course, this is someone on the Broadway World message board. Of course. Like that uh, conservative blogger who accused Maxine Water of shoving him. And you look at the tape, she goes by him. On the way to approach it, she's like, excuse me, young man, I'm trying to impeach this guy. I don't have time for you. And he was like, this woman shoved me. And it's like, no, your fragility is so extreme that an old black woman trying to simply move through a space is an attack on your personhood. Right. Like a black actor addressing the audience is screaming at you because it is breaking the fourth wall and making you uncomfortable about your uh, status. You know what the but the show really made me think about it. and I mean obviously if you're listening to this right now you know you're listening to a podcast and it made me think a lot about you know how we have become so used to listening without really listening because like during the podcast segment I also like you know like my mind started like wondering and then there was a moment where it brought me back to the show when I don't remember what the people in the podcast said, and I went, whoa. So, I, you know, I wondered about that also, you know, like about all the NPR liberals and like, they're all like, oh, we Hillary Obama people who are just, you know, like liberal and progressive in theory and what it takes to bring these people to actually doing something in practice. And I appreciated that about the show because I was like, you know, like, you can listen to all the NPR you want and tweet all day long, but if you're not voting, if you're not doing anything, really, if you're not being like kind and helping people, if you're not giving people of color, you know, room and space in real life, then you're just full of crap, pretty much. Yeah, I felt like a lot of that podcast overlay was white liberals trying to outdo each other to be the most liberal liberal. and just (laughs) stepping on their toes in the process. It was just, you just go, Oh God. Oh no. You know, when someone puts on a, I feel like someone at one point put on like an Asian accent and Oh God, it was just bad. Um, Yeah. So overall I enjoyed it and I think it caused a lot of questions for us. Yes. And it doesn't necessarily have to fall into the category of feel good or feel bad. It can fall into the category of, huh, that's something, or that made me think, or maybe next time I'll be aware of blank. Uh, And maybe that was Jackie's point. And in that I say kudos to Soho Rep for being able to take a risk and a challenge for something that wasn't quite 
necessarily developed and smoothed out in all the rough edges, uh, but putting it out there for discussion. Yeah. Our last show this week was a musical adaptation of Measure for Measure called Desperate Measures, running at New World Stages. It has a book and lyrics by Peter Kellogg and music by David Friedman. And, you know, it's a musical adaptation of Measure for Measure. <laughs> and, the, and, you know, in the, the Wild West. And so everyone's a cowboy, basically. And there's this guy who's in prison because he killed a dude. And his sister, who's a nun. And his girlfriend, who's a saloon dancer slash sex worker. They're trying to help him. And I don't know about you guys, but, you know, like, obviously, like, Measure for Measure is, like, has a lot of problems. And I don't know how I felt about, you know, like, let's go be happy at a musical where two women are trying to get this asshole out of prison. That, that's what really got me about this play is that in the opener, they acknowledge this is one of Shakespeare's problem plays. Mm-hmm. We don't do it an awful lot because it's a problem. And they go, you know, we know it's a problem, but don't worry. We cut it. We cut a whole plot. So basically, what they, they acknowledged it was a problem, and they kept the problem yep. and cut everything else. Like, yeah. who sees measure for measure? Like, you know, we should really zero in on the rape stuff. And just, like, why? Why? These poor women have nothing to do, but they, they kind of throw them a bone and try and do a little female friendship in there. But honestly, it's all about these women helping out these men. And it's just, oh. Yeah, and like the well, New World stages, you know, it's where regional theaters go to shop. It's like their Costco's. You go to pick up a nice like two pack of B level, C grade plays that you can spread out over a season or two in Oklahoma or in yeah. Kansas. New World going to New World stages always feels to me like I'm going to a theme park. Yeah, you know, you kind of hit your little spots and it's all kind of weirdly lit, and you you go aisle and aisle, and you know, I think it's partially because there's so many different shows going on at the same time that you have to get slotted into a track essentially um and then you get in the theater and it's super raked so it feels a little like you're going to the imax experience i don't know about you guys um and then this show felt like a theme park show and i don't mean that in a bad way it just felt like it probably could have been like a 90 minute you fit this in and then you go to the hot dog stand afterwards right it was pleasant i guess you're giving them ideas it's not too bad <laughs> Universal, desperate measure. Although yeah. it'd have to be like on Pleasure Island, the Disney, I was say, the Disney in, Island for adults because there's a lot, in a lot of sex. Yeah, yeah I was completely in my mind having a, a grand old Opry flashback playing over this. Over, I'd be like, oh, this would have been so great with Dolly Parton. Yeah. I was like, this would have been a great thing in the Grand Old Opry because it's like double entendre coming right it up. Is, it's so yeah. hammy. It's so hammy. Um, and she could have played, Dolly could have played like the prostitute. Oh, 100%. We, people would have been rooting for her. I had it all cast in my mind yeah. of like, who would have played the, the, the bitter nun who loses her grip and learns <laughs> to explore. I was like, this is Grand Old Opry style. Um, not that that's bad. No, you just stick Harper Valley PTA like square in the middle of yeah. the show and <laughs> square dance. It'd be great. Like, um, I, I have to say, I was I felt so guilty while I was at the show, and I was not enjoying it because I was so disturbed by everything. I was like, this is a show about white straight men, for the most part straight, I guess, trying to convince women that sex with straight white men is what their lives should be about. And then people were laughing and like, you know, like slapping their knees and everything. And this show got really, really wonderful 
reviews. And it's like people like zoned out of like the whole, this is a show about fucking how terrible men are. Yeah. And I no like one's acknowledging it. There were parts where I was just like, Liz, loosen up. But when everyone's laughing at all of the cracks about, you know, I'm going to have sex with her regardless of whether she wants it or not from the governor and all that. It was very creepy. And the way he's just going to run, he's going to take whatever he wants, how he's going to get it. And that's how it's going to be. And that, I just, I don't find that as a, I don't find that as a funny villain. Come on, Liz. Loosen. I know. That's what I was like. Have another drink. (laughs) Let go of the Susan Sontag (laughs) cushion you're sitting on. And the bell hooks bookmark uh, (laughs) in your mind. That's me. Feminist killjoy Liz. Um, Oh, my God. With their (laughs) burning bra over here. Not wanting to talk about rape jokes for a PG-13 thing, which many teenagers will see and feel encouraged by. Because I can definitely see a school bringing their kids to this show because it's an easy, digestible version of a problem play but it's a problem that's the reason it's a problem um i will say lauren molina is delightful i did perk up when we started getting the numbers between her and um what's his name connor ryan who plays the the male lead that everyone's trying to get out of prison because the two of them are so cheesy and then you bring the two of them together and they're just over the top they're constantly mugging and just chewing scenery together and i enjoyed that together because I wanted that acting in Everyone's Fine with Virginia Woolf. That expert sitcom cheesy acting yeah. in a lot of Virginia Woolf that would have elevated in my opinion. But it, like mm. that's a skill. Being yes, that cheesy sure. on stage and committing to it so that I start laughing despite myself. Like the bad groaning lines they had to say and they just like they sold it. Yeah. Laura Lita is just lip rolling the entire play and it's delightful. And she's also like so funny that she, but she also manages like even when she's doing this uh, outlandish, like outrageous, like gestures and like all this like facial expressions, she still manages to be very moving at times. Like yes. you know, like yeah. I, I, I was like pissed at all like the misogyny and stuff. But when she says, and this isn't a spoiler because it's Shakespeare and whatever. <laughs> when she spoiler, yeah, when she's you like, seen the play yet. when she's like, you know, like when she wants to get married to this asshole governor who wants to rape all the women, and she's like this might be the best thing that happens to me and she's saying it you know like to make us laugh but she also means it and that was really funny but also so fucking heartbreaking and i loved her like you know like she was my favorite thing she was she was in the show. definitely the highlight of the show also that uh, cactus onesie which i definitely want for oh, summer yes um if i can get set up with that a costume designer please i would like one the irony is that the west was won or settled mostly by women they were the ones who had the power. Without women, the West would have just been a bunch of work camps. It was the brothels which cities organized themselves around that allowed men to go into an area with this money and spend that then created bars, that then created hotels and saloons. And the most powerful business people of that era were women who were starting up brothels and then would leverage that into a hotel and then leverage that into a saloon then would help elect public officials and then sort of controlled a lot of the towns in the west that's who really was uh taming the west not like cowboys and people who had six shooters it was the people who had the capital and women had the thing that guys wanted and, and that's they were willing to spend money <laughs> yeah. beyonce you know 
who runs the world girls in very tight tight dresses and high heels uh, like, women like, so uh that's a whole other aside because obviously they're not going for historical like accurate take of how the west uh was settled but it is kind of funny that you're watching like a western and it doesn't pass the Bechdel test at all. And it's these women running around They make around a joke about that, too. I remember mm-hmm. they made a Bechdel test joke. But, but, like, in the West, women were, were the scarcity. So they actually had the leverage. There were way too many guys and too few women who wanted to actually go out West. So that's why they had a lot of the power. But in, on stage, it's the opposite. All the women are running after the guys like they're precious metal. And I'm like, no, there's five other cowboys who are as dabishly handsome as uh, Connor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of hope at the beginning, you know, when we meet Sister Mary Jo, the the sister who lives in the the nunnery, I was kind of hoping that she that this modernization would have given her a little more agency. Mm. Yeah, but they literally they show her with a gun and she can't. She's trying to get rid of a crow and she can't and she can't. And then great, the big strong man shoots it for her and we're off. And I just went, oh shit. You know what really confused me about this show, though, was that I was sitting there and I was like, this show seems geared for, like, red states. Like, you know, like, for, I don't know, like, all the people who voted for the current president to be like, hooray, let's subjugate women. But it's also so, like, anti-religion. And, like, you know, there's, like, the priest who's, like, obsessed with, like, Nietzsche, basically, and who doesn't believe in God anymore. And then the show's also saying that the nun should not be a nun because God isn't as important as, you know, getting dick from, like, a cowboy. So I'm like, what audience? Crazy argument. (laughs) (laughs) So who is this show for? Like, where is this show supposed to run? The thoughtless middle (laughs) that lives on contradictions and doesn't want to actually explore all those weird contradictions in the piece. But I guess actually the the religion aspect, now that you bring it up, to me wasn't religion is bad. It was like, God is what's in your heart, which isn't a terrible thing. I mean, that's, you know, that you don't have to be in an institution to see the beauty and see uh, you can marry a nice man and settle down and uh, have your religion that way. I saw that coming from a mile away. Yeah. I was like, you're not going to end with a priest who becomes atheist. He's no. going to settle on some Disney-fied Christianity of yeah. like, it's what's inside. Yeah, and people go, oh, okay. And then he and I think that him. goes down real smooth. I think yeah. people can get behind, even very religious people can get behind that. And a-religious people could be like, okay, whatever makes you feel better. <laughs> sort of roll your eyes. Like, if that makes you sleep at night, sure, it's in your heart. Mm-hmm. You know? That could be indigestion. It could be anything. But we'll say it's God in your heart. From the hot dogs. From the hot dogs you had <laughs> chowing down at intermission at New World Stages. <laughs> so what, what shows Why is off? that place so soulless? Anyway, sorry. Because <laughs> it used to be a movie theater. That's why. It has like that stadium yeah. feel to no, it. It used like, to be a multiplex. That's nothing it just sticks to that, that the walls. Nothing feels like it's a theater. But that's a movie complex. Okay. Yeah. Did you ever see a movie there? No, 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 but I just I happen to know that that's what it used to be. And when you walk Escalator. in, you'll be like, oh, of course, that's what yeah. this was. We, need, we also need more movie theaters. But anyway, <laughs> uh, what shows are next on your calendars? Uh, let's see. Well, we're seeing Log Cabin, Jose and yes, I. We oh, already saw that. that. The day um, the podcast comes out. Yeah. And I, I just saw Dance Nation. I just saw that, too. Which I really enjoyed. I don't know if you did, but I did. Um, I have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> ah, for a different podcast. Um, we also reviewed Dance Nation a few episodes ago. Yes. Yeah. 
Oh, that's right. I should go back and listen. I skipped it because I knew I was going to go see it. It was a great episode, Liz. Okay. No, okay. I'll go back. I'll go back. <laughs> I did listen to you in deep talk about it on the American Theater, Token Theater Friends podcast. Thank you. I swear I did not ask her to plug my podcast. Look, I just, I try and plug everybody's everything. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> I try to plug everything. Um, but that's, I don't have tickets for much coming up. It feels like it's pretty quiet right now. Well, there's all those Shakespeare's in the parks. Yeah, I'll probably make it out to Shakespeare in the Park. If I can get a discount ticket for... I just saw Paradise Blue, and I guess 121st Street is closing today, so I'm going to miss that. But I've seen that before twice. Just like Iceman Cometh, I'm not going to see it again. I've already seen it. Um, (laughs) So I feel it's homework theater. I don't need to go see it again. I I do feel like if a cheap ticket comes up for Skin Tight, I will see it, because Josh brought that play in the class, and we read it, and I'm interested in seeing the changes. Uh, and the advertisement for the play doesn't represent the play at all. So I, th- I find that funny. Is that um, about Idina getting like more Getting facelift? Yeah. I mean, maybe he radically rewrote it. But at least when I read it, she's a side character. And it's about like a daughter and a father who has a sugar, who's a sugar daddy to this rich, hot uh, boy toy. And so, well, I feel like if Idina's oh. in the role, they must have beefed it up a yeah, little bit. Yeah, they must have rewritten it because she, in the initial play... Didn't have much to do, but if skin tight, if if someone has a, a discount ticket, just because I'm principal, I don't want to pay retail for mm-hmm. a theater. Uh, let me know, and you know, signature, whatever they have going on. What's coming up next is signature. Be more chill. Oh, be more chill. Yeah. What's that? The Joe Iconis musical. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. The kids fun. love it. Well, I'm yeah. not a kid anymore, but it's fun. Okay. okay. Yeah. It's what? making its New York debut. Which is exciting. It's based on a book. It's the music's fantastic. Then I will probably yeah. be seeing that just yeah. by the osmosis of being in Signature Theater's lounge. She's going to suck you in. There's just there. I've seen so many shows there just because the lounge is like waiting for you. Yeah, it's like oh sure, there's a, it's yeah, a fantastic lounge. I love yeah. that lounge. It's the best part of New York City right now. <laughs> um, if the World um, Trade Center had a lounge like that next so, to the memorial, it's so far away. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. true. It's, I'm also really looking forward to uh, Teenage Dick at the Public Theater. Oh, yeah, that's on my radar. I just haven't gotten tickets. That, that is another play that, that I'm going to list of so like Passover. I could see it, but I've already seen it before. And in the case of Teenage Dick, I've seen it twice. Oh, wow. So it's mm. like, I could see it again. I did enjoy it. But there are other things I might want to see. But Teenage Dick is great. Uh, and Passover, someone asked me, like, do you want to see it? I was like, I've seen it before when it was at Cherry Lane like two years ago. And it was on Netflix, and it was like, do I want to see it again? Maybe. <laughs> Wait, it's uh, on Netflix? Yeah, Spike Lee filmed it as a, a movie on oh, Netflix. All oh, right, wow. well, I'll just have to check it out there then. <laughs> Damn it, I just ruined a potential audience member. Uh, <laughs> it's on Netflix, but you should still see it live. Yeah, theater's always better if I can just watch it with like no pants on, as far as I'm concerned. That's why they well, darken I mean, it's the summer, you don't need pants. Yeah, anyway, absolutely. So, yeah. And I, I do want to add that uh, since we're talking about Virginia Woolf, the Quad Cinema has a great Elizabeth Taylor retrospective oh, going nice. on right now. Cool. And they're showing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on the 25th. So, you know, get your tickets and thank you guys. And we'll see you all soon. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximum Theater Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that are different from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Maximum. Liz is at Miss Liz Richards, Oren at Oren Squire, and I am at Jose Solis Mayen. If you enjoy the show, 
please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximoisms. You can get to the store via Maximoism.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. Thank you. Oh, yeah.